0: This episode of the ebook revolution is brought to you by Madhouse Media and ebook in a box. If you want to learn how to write and publish an ebook in a walkthrough video course, um, just go to madhousemedia.com.au/slash ebook in a box and you can save 50% off the $97 access fee by using the coupon code EBR. Get your ebook written and published. Ebook in a Box is a step by step video coaching guide that walks you through exactly how to write and publish a professionally packaged ebook. Go and have a look at madhousemedia.com.au ebook in a box. Use the coupon code EBR for ebook revolution and save 50% right off the bat. And of course, 30 day money back guarantee. Let's get on with the show. Hi, people. Welcome to the ebook revolution. I'm Jeff Hughes from Madhouse Media Publishing, and uh, you're listening to the Ebook Revolution podcast. And it's a great show today that I have lined up for you. I had a, a great discussion with Dr. Anthony Mattivier, who's a, a memory ninja. The brain's a crazy thing, isn't it? When you when you think about it, it's um, this wet muscle. It does so much And Um We misuse it We abuse it We uh Marinate it In um Uh Sweet Various Alcohols Uh Probably too much To its detriment But um What Anthony has Uh Taught me In, in this interview Is um What a powerful And extraordinary Thing The mind is And um how it can be harnessed um, for writing and many other things besides uh, Anthony, um, a very prolific guy. He's uh, built a huge platform around um, his magnetic memory method and I find him very inspiring and just a humble guy and one of those guys that just gets on with baby steps and, and does it. Daily as daily practice, and just builds and builds, <clears throat> and he's created quite an empire with his books and writing, and podcast and uh, training academies at Udemy. So um, let's let's have a listen. This is me talking to Dr. Anthony Mativier. Okay, Anthony Mativier is the founder of the Magnetic Memory Method, which is a systematic 21st century approach to memorizing foreign language, vocabulary, dreams, names, music, poetry, and pretty much um, lots of other stuff in ways that are easy, elegant, effective, and fun. Now, I wish I wrote that, but I just poached it off uh, your, <laughs> your Amazon page, but it's very eloquent.
1: <laughs> oh, thank you. Whatever works.
0: Anthony also has time for his uh, Magnetic Memory Method podcast and teaches over 21,000 students via video courses at udemy.com. He's also a best-selling author with over 10 books on the subjects of memory and language and a novel as well, Lucas Parks. I had a look at that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He's a true renaissance man and I'm very pleased to have him on the show. Welcome, Anthony.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me, Jeff. It's great to speak with you.
0: My pleasure. Tell me, what what drives all this restless creativity?
1: Oh, I've been like this since I was a kid. You know, they couldn't make me behave in school, so they would relent to my wishes and put me in the corner and I would just write all the time. And uh, I, I, I sort of wish that I had an answer for that, but if I did have an answer, it's just sort of following my interests and my passions and practicing output and uh, thinking about what I'm doing so that I can improve it and find ways to put out even more stuff and then improve that, that kind of stuff as I go along. So it's kind of a scientific way of life in some sense um, where I just need a lab and I need the raw materials, and then I need the output so that I can look at it and reconfigure it and then go on to the next experiment.
0: You certainly publish a lot and produce a wide variety of content books, blogging, podcasts, courses. What's your secret to getting so much done?
1: Well, I don't think it's a secret. I think it's the thing that everybody knows. You pick a time, you write and then you stop and then you do it again the next day it's uh it's not a secret in any stretch of the imagination i think what it what it comes down to is actually having something to write about and then showing up and doing it and i guess one thing that really helps also is to not think of things necessarily as being writing so one Interesting quote that I came across that has been attributed to many people is that uh, all wealth comes from writing, and in well, for well over a hundred years, making images has been a kind of writing. So there's video; that's a kind of uh, you know, it's like it's a light pen, as they used to call it in the early uh, uh, 1900s, uh, and so that's part of the part of the productivity is to to not Divide these different things and the podcast. So I can go on an interview and I have an assistant who transcribes it. That then becomes writing and it becomes text that can be manipulated. And then I have dictated books when I couldn't, for whatever reason, type. And if I can't dictate, then I write on my iPhone. And it's just, or I write by hand or I do mind mapping or something. There's just something always going on. By by releasing the concept of writing from keyboard, fingers, and screen, or pen and paper, there's lots of different ways to produce text.
0: That's uh, I find that very interesting. It's um, I think a lot of people get caught up on the old myth of writer's block. That uh, if you know that they aspire to be a writer, but just sitting down and doing the work on Things on a keyboard or pen and paper just uh, gets too much, and, and yeah, you know, this mythical thing called writer's block raises its head. What what what's your take on that?
1: Oh, I don't buy into writer's block at all. I've never had it, and I don't believe in it. What I would rather people understand is that there's something called thinker's block. I like that. And yeah. thinkers, well, yeah, it, it really is that because writing is a physical activity and so to say that you are blocked from writing is really to say that your hands are in in cuffs and your fingers are immobilized you know something like that 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 would be being blocked from the physical activity of writing but there's nothing to stop you from opening up a document and typing your name again and again and again. Now, I don't necessarily recommend that, although I used to do that uh, for people, but I found other things that are more interesting to do. But even if you were to do that, it would knock you out of the complacency of not having an idea because what could be more boring than writing your name over and over and over again? The thing is, is that by getting yourself into motion, you are much more likely to come across ideas to write about than you are by waiting for an idea to trigger you into motion and so if there's a secret that's it it's just getting into motion and many many mornings i have gotten up and written physically written i have no idea what i'm going to write right now but if i had a cool idea it would probably be x or some variation along those theme uh, themes in order to just trigger the physical motion because writing is a physical activity period there's no no ideas required
0: it's it's quite true, isn't it? It's getting in the, into the zone, in, into the flow. So, hey. so you may may think you've got nothing to write about, but you sit down, and once you start, you get into the flow, no distractions, and and <clears throat> something comes. I
1: think the other thing too is that one needs to not be precious about what comes out. Uh, I've written lots of things, and I would say that, you know, of the. 200,000 words of my dissertation, probably 20% of that survived, but the dissertation got written nonetheless, you know, and I wasn't precious about it. And when the supervisor said, this is crap, get rid of it. I just got rid of it. You know, I didn't think about it too much because the, the best advice I ever got while I was doing my PhD was just get it done. There are seven people who are going to read this and probably no one else including yourself is ever going to read it ever again so just get it done and uh, i've applied that ever since to lots of things and realized that a lot of what gets written gets sacrificed but it's the oil that helps run the engine and without it you can't keep things greased and humming and you can't shape anything so that's another principle i think that's really useful to keep in mind when writing
0: new writers often get hung up about the um drafting content that you know that they, they get stuck into a project and then start reviewing it as they're writing it then start edi- editing it and before long you're in a, a sort of a uh, death dive you can't you can't get any further because you you're convinced what you're writing is crap rather than just getting it out of your head getting the raw material to to work with like like the raw clay i guess I'm, mm. I'm currently halfway through uh, NaNoWriMo for the first time and um, finding it a huge challenge, but I've just hit 25,000 words just by doing 2,000 a day. So um, I've, I've found getting into that zone just, um, just helps immensely and realizing that yeah. it's, um, it's just a draft, it's just raw material.
1: Oh yeah, I've done it a few times myself over the years and I I don't find that it really – like the 2,000 word cap is great to to move towards but I don't think it really requires that every word is golden and, and nothing would happen if that were the case. Oh, and a course. lot of what I've written during those periods has been tangents that later needed to be removed from the final product. But the beauty of those tangents is they could potentially become other stories at a different point but they're also means of thinking about the story that you're writing and there's nothing wrong with just removing that stuff so that it you can focus on the story that you're actually telling but often you have to tell stories that surround the central story in order to even understand what sto- story you are trying to tell
0: That's that's interesting to me has have any of your NaNoWriMo projects actually made it um to publish publication?
1: Uh, no, not that I can think of. <laughs> um, the One, I have actually written three times because uh, I, I wrote the first draft the first year that I tried it, and then the next one I rewrote it during that year, and then I wrote another novel that ultimately became a play. And so... Yeah, so I've, I've done it uh, the two times that I can think of. I may, Oh, I did it a third time as well. Um, but nothing has actually been published from that. Rather, what, what has been published, you mentioned Lucas Parks and the Download of Doom. That was not a, uh, a November novel, but it was a novel written in 30 days. And there's another one written in 30 days. So I've, I've essentially uh, extracted my need for it to happen in November and just do it whenever. But there is something in psychology called the fresh start principle. And when I write a new book, I tend to start on the first of the month and then just write every day
0: yeah.
1: until that is done. And it t- typically is more than 30 days. It'll be like 45 days. But Lucas Park was, uh, was dead on 30 days, I believe. It's so
0: The fresh start principle. I haven't heard of that. Could you go into that a bit deeper?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I I, I would not recommend it to anyone as dogma, but there has been some research that if you pick a project and you start on Thursday, April 24th, you're much less likely to succeed according to the research than if you pick May 1st because it's a fresh start psychologically, right? And the whole world is... In unison with you or at least that amount of the world that obeys the calendar that says may 1st is the first of the month and so it's just an, uh, a principle that they've identified that people tend to get more success by having some kind of fresh start so it could be the first day of the week or it could be the first day of the year which we know notoriously is bad for new year's resolutions <laughs> no, it so definitely. it, it seems that the data that it seems not to jive with with what we intuitively know but by the same token it is showing results so it may be that you know new year's resolutions are cursed but every other fresh start is fine <laughs> i don't know but uh, it, does, it for me it does seem to work that that if i start a novel on the first day of the month or a new book that that is a better time to start than any other time of the month because it's contained there's a structural understanding of what this time period means it's the first of the month and then there's the end of the month and that's either you know 29 days 30 days 31 days it's just it's clean and clear and crisp and it helps focus the mind
0: i i subscribe to your theory it's a good one Tell me,
1: and it may actually have to do with months better than years because three hundred and sixty five days starting on January the first is a pretty big chunk of time. but thirty yeah. days, the mind can conceive of
0: that. You can hold it in your hand. Mm-hmm. Tell me, Anthony, um, what what excites you about memory and language? they They seem to be your twin passions.
1: Yes, well, they're the same thing in many ways. Um, what can you do without Language and how can you use language without memory? They share the characteristic of existing only in one place, which is the present moment. There's no other time that memory takes place. There's no other time that language takes place. So that's very exciting. And what excites me on top of that is that you can manipulate both of them in very similar ways, and you can use one to manipulate the other. So one really calls the other into existence. It's almost like Apollo and Dionysus. They're tied at the hip. <laughs> so I don't know if that's too abstract, but that's, uh, that's very exciting elements of memory and language for sure.
0: Do you, um, you're obviously deep into this topic, but it fascinates me. Does language alter memory, the, the way we, th- we, we think and remember? Is that determined yeah. by by our native language, by our first first mother tongue, if you like?
1: If well, there's interesting discussion. There's discussions about that whether that is the case or not. Does language influence our cultural perception as much as we have said that we have done? So, there's a scholar, uh, John McWhorter, is uh, I believe his name, and that's a test of my memory but uh he (laughs) recently (laughs) he's i don't know do you know him is that the correct name i'm i'm hoping so um he had recently done a ted talk or at least it feels like it was a recent ted talk because i recently saw it which is a a distortion the internet makes in our minds Um, he had questioned this is it really the case that the way that the chinese um, would express something deeply and deeply enough changes their perception that it's different than the way we express something. And we feel from the outside that that's the case in in many cases. Um, but whether it's really true that our language changes the core things that we need to say on a daily basis, like, hey, how you doing, right? that's a That doesn't really change that much depending on how that you say it, I don't think. It can have a different feeling and flavor to a certain extent because of the nature of how a language sounds but at the end of the day how deep does the language change that it's just a question I don't know the answer but when he when he raised the raised it I thought yeah I think he, he may be he may be right that it's not as deep a uh, influence as we tend to think and the more different languages I study the more I see just similarities and not so many differences because you get through a wall of contact and you don't see the differences as much you begin to see the similarities and so what humanity is comes forth rather than what different language differences stand between you
0: yeah that's that's fascinating i I recently watched that movie um arrival which is uh i don't know if you've seen it but basically the aliens arrive but um it's a movie about linguistics. It's like a thinking person sci-fi movie. It's, um, so the the linguist has to solve the puzzle of how these creatures speak and think and communicate. And I think there was a... I read somewhere... I, I can't, can't remember the philosopher's name, but he basically spoke of the same concept that if, if a lion could speak... Would we understand it? Because, you know, a lion's um, idea of the world is is quite foreign and alien and bizarre to our idea of a world, and vice versa.
1: Well, I mean, that's an interesting question, is it? There are only so many actions that can be conducted under the sun. So, could its view of the world be so radically different? I think maybe its needs and how it acts upon its needs are different. But left, right, up, down. Um, those, those kinds of concepts would be, would come forward, I think, uh, in ways that we would be able to understand.
0: Do you think, uh, how, how, how can memory make us better writers, do you think?
1: Oh, very easily. I mean, for one thing, I'm sure everybody has had this experience where they can't remember the name of their characters, uh, (laughs) And they have to look back through their drafts or they can't remember what they wrote the last time and they have to look back. And, you know, they create these stories that have such a massive amount of data that that they just they lose the they they, they lose what they're doing because they don't remember their own material. And so one thing that just practicing memory techniques in and of itself can do for you is that they require you to up the action and put a little more energy into your visual psychology, let's say, and your visualization yeah. abilities. Even though you don't necessarily have to see high-definition television in your head, and very few neminists do. Uh, world memory champions don't have some special ability to to switch on a cinema in their minds. It's just uh, it's just a way of being more visual. That's kind of unique to each person, but because of that visuality, you begin to, in your own writing, remember more about what it is that you wrote, because it is more inherently visual. And over time, I become a more visual writer, I was a very, very conceptual writer, and very much into experimental, uh, intellectual writing in my university years, where there was hardly an image to see. And I never used similes. And I still actually try to Avoid similes, but I'm a much more visual writer now, and that's come from developing a visual practice for memory techniques. So that helps me manage my own stories and makes them more memorable as such because they're already more visual. And the more visual they are, the more likely you are to remember what's going on.
0: That's that uh, fits ne- neatly back into the whole concept of the uh, memory palace. I, I recently reread uh, Moonwalking with Einstein. Um, mm. When I, when I knew I was going to be talking to you and, and has, has some eloquent descriptions of the, the memory palace. But um, a, a great read, if, if you could take our, our listeners just briefly through how, what the memory palace is and how it can help your recollections.
1: Well, the memory palace is a mental construct that's typically but not always based on a place that you're familiar with. So if you're listening to this in a car, that could potentially be a memory palace because it's a structure that has characteristics like four corners, the you know left side of your window and the right side of the window. And then you have the back seats and you can even use the front uh, hood and the back trunk as little areas in space that you can just think about. And if you can think about those areas in space, then you can place things in those spaces. So if you are thinking about your car as a memory palace, a potential memory palace, if you could just get a picture in your mind, even if it's not HD television, but some concept of Godzilla dancing with a armful of tulips... <laughs> and that are spilling nuclear warheads onto the hood of your car. You know, that's now something where you can think later in the day, ah, I was thinking something weird. And you could go to the trunk or the hood of your car and you could say, what was I thinking there? And then you say, ah, yeah, it was Godzilla and he had tulips and they were spilling warheads, right? And so you can just remember the crazy images as such. But what the memory palace lets you do is it lets you put those crazy images somewhere and if you were to link those crazy images to something that you didn't know, but you wanted to know, then you can just use the crazy images to decode what you would normally have forgotten and then recall it, and then you can make a journey throughout this memory palace mm-hmm. from image to image to image that lets you rehearse the images you've created or the Im- the material that you wanted to memorize, and it would... Uh, Let you get that into long-term memory much much faster and in a way that's a lot more exciting than index cards or spaced repetition software at least for many people Uh, some people really do well with spaced uh, repetition index cards and the like but uh, I've never been able to tolerate it much although I do some experiments with it for research Uh, I much prefer to to go from spot to spot or station to station, as I call it, in my kitchen and recall a new Chinese poem or an English poem, for that matter, in a restaurant that I've just laid out on a journey through a memory palace.
0: It's a fascinating technique. and One one takeout I got from the book was using your childhood home as a memory palace, which I've tried myself, um, which I I still use to this day to remember my mundane shopping list <laughs> i'm I'm very mm. very proud to say I, I haven't written down a shopping list for for years I, I can I memory Palson it and it's fabulous technique but the the um the outtake of the book is that we we all have childhood homes and we can all recall them in in great detail. It's a great way to start
1: yeah um the childhood home you have work, many people go to church, museums, art galleries restaurants cafes hotel rooms i mean i just did a tour of scandinavia and every single hotel room is now a memory palace and i'm learning chinese and i've just been picking up chinese like crazy because of using all these multiple memory palaces and everybody has dozens of them in their lives if they sit down and uh, take a moment to to write them out i have worksheets that help people go through this that are free on my website so uh by all means avail yourself of those because it's it's the simplest way to remember more
0: that's uh, and it's a good mental exercise that's magneticmemorymethod.com yes great
1: and it's a uh, pretty clear where to uh, collect those worksheets and some videos that explain everything
0: you've um talking about that you've you've created a great platform for your brand and your message what what advice would you give to to writers on who are setting out building a platform for the first time
1: well it's a paradoxical message which is that you've got to focus on one thing but also understand that writing in the 21st century is not one thing anymore it's multiple media yeah so uh you certainly can get traction with just one book but if you want to scale then you will want to include as much other media as you can but in a way that matches your style and is you know like I don't do everything I, I don't have an Instagram account at least I don't think I do um <laughs> but and that's not because I would have forgotten but because I have a team that helps me with certain things yeah, but yeah. um if they opened one it's it's not in my awareness but uh the, the, it's very important to understand that writing is just not about books anymore, and it hasn't been for a long time anyway. But it's certainly more and more the case that you need to be a master of at least a couple of channels for putting your stuff out there. But, again, the paradox is is that when I got started, it was just with one book on Kindle, and it went bananas, and it just – it was a at least a, a year and a half before I turn I was doing very well with that before I started a website and or at least started magneticmemorymethod.com. I tinkered with a website previous to that which I've recently revived and but it was at least a year and a half before I got into that and then I made a video course after that and then added the podcast after that and that's when things were really starting to hum along but I did I did uh, start making my living off this just from books mm. self-published uh, at the beginning. But in order to really reach people, you've got to hit them in their preferred media consumption uh, preferences. So video, audio and print and Kindle are and, uh, is just a, a must at bare minimum.
0: What, what was the, that first book that kicked all this off for you?
1: Well, it's kind of a funny story because I was uh, this academic who had uh, just recently completed a major research grant and I didn't get another grant and I didn't get another position and I lost a tooth in the front and I was scrambling for cash to get an implant because I looked really ugly and uh, I was not getting new jobs because of this. I mean, I have a pretty distinct look anyway I'm kind of from the heavy metal background and played in heavy metal bands for years and really stubborn about cutting my hair so that I can appeal to more people and I now had a missing tooth and anyway (laughs) I was knocking on doors and I finally found a school this wonderful entrepreneur in Vancouver she allowed me uh, gave me a position to write curriculum and we became friends and she gave me an office and anyway one day someone didn't show up to teach a course at this school. And she came in and she gave me an elastic and she threw me in the room and said, teach them something. (laughs) So I looked through whatever they were supposed to do. And uh, 15 minutes later, we were done with what they needed to study. And I said, what do you guys want to do next? And they said, "Uh, I don't know, you're the teacher. And so I said, you want to know how to say the alphabet backwards? And so I taught them this memory stunt and they all got it really fast. It surprised me how fast that they were able to do it. It was within four minutes. And then I started showing them how to memorize cards. And they said, can you please write all this down? Even though they'd gotten it, you know, they wanted a manual to refer to. So I said, yeah, sure. No problem. So the next time they showed up, I had this manual for them. And as I was writing it, I was like, "Eh, I'll show them how I memorized like a bunch of german vocabulary and phrases as well oh and i'll show them how i memorize poetry and i'll show them this and that and that became the basis of the first book which once i put it on amazon i totally forgot about until a friend of mine emailed me and he said hey have you seen your book it's like number one in three categories Or it was number one in two categories and number three in the third category i was like holy crap and i saw that and i thought well if i can do that with if I can do that with one book, I can do it with dozens. So I got started. <laughs> and before you knew it, I was on tour with a band totally funded by my Kindle books.
0: <laughs> that must have been a great feeling when that first book took off on Kindle.
1: It was It was just a, a wild feeling because I never believed it. I had been writing these obscure, strange novels. I had a small press uh, production thing going on with a friend of mine named Rob Reed. And we were putting out books like Limited editions, and we'd make a little bit of money that would cover the costs. And these were elaborate. I mean, when we made a book, it looked like a guillotine blade, and we got busy (laughs) spraying it with blood. And, you know, we had a book called um, uh, Closed Letter Open Book, or no, Open Letter Closed Book. And we closed the pages, and it had a plastic knife that came with every copy. And it was, you know, like political statement, poetry weirdo stuff. And I just thought, I would never believed that I would ever be the kind of person who could make any money off writing. And I was writing for academic journals, hoping that, you know, some university would see that I'd said something clever enough to be welcomed into tenure track life. And, uh, it was pretty miserable. And so then to see that I actually could do this alchemical thing of something, some skill that I know that could make a living for me. I just thought, oh, this is how you do it. And so then I just got busy and kept <laughs> kept working at it.
0: That's a great story. What, what, what's the one bit of advice you wish somebody had given you when you, you wrote that first book and self-published it on Amazon? like With all this being in front of you and not, not knowing it was going to have that success?
1: I don't know if it's so much that I wish that I would have been given a particular kind of advice, but rather that I'd taken a kind of advice because I had another friend who said, and this is, this is just bizarre, but for for until that I had a website for this year, year and a half, however long it was, I did not have a website. I did not have any way for people to follow up with me after reading the books, and he's just like, you have to have some kind of lead capture mechanism in your book. So I had the perfect advice. I just didn't follow it because I was still in this kind of professor thing, and I was like, ah, I don't want to be in – I don't want to – blah blah. I don't want – don't, 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 right? I didn't – I didn't want any of these things. But then, baby steps. I changed the Kindle book. So I made some worksheets for people. Hey, if you need help constructing a memory palace, uh, then now I'm trying to train myself to say create memory palace because constructing sounds like hard work when it's not really. It's actually pretty simple. So create a memory palace. And then I'd have people email me. And then I'd email them back. And then this suddenly got so overwhelming that I had to. I was forced to make a website that had an automated – Delivery of these worksheets. And I also had like, my email account shut down because I started emailing like 700 people at a time because I was getting so many questions and I was answering them. And I thought this is a lot of work answering one person at a time. I'll just email everybody who's emailed me their <laughs> questions. And then the email account got shut down. So I was forced to like up my game, but I went in kicking and screaming. And at that time, $1 for a trial Aweber account was to me unthinkable. But I somehow I got over that. And after that, things just really started to roll really quickly. And then the odd thing was, and I was quasi-Marxist, you know, really, really into my into my stuff with that you get indoctrinated with in the university world. Yeah. And I just was anti-commercial and so forth. And then I, it was just, it was like becoming Darth Vader. I just fell in love with marketing, <laughs> and understood that I'd been doing it all along. The dark like I never,
0: side, but, Anthony. <laughs>
1: Well, no, I mean, it's the beautiful <laughs> side, but I, I, I never realized what a marketer I had always been as a professor because I never believed yeah. students should read my books or read, not my books, but read the books that I was telling them to read. I always tried to sell them on reading the books. I tell them, don't read this difficult Jacques Derrida. I will explain to you why it's the most amazing thing. And if you agree, then go and read it and you'll, your life will be changed. You know, <laughs> And so I was always pitching, but I just didn't realize that there's much deeper virtue than one could ever imagine in being able to develop copywriting skills and so forth. So it's not the dark side, but it's it's definitely perceived that way by a lot of people and I think that that's one thing that stops a lot of writers from progressing is that they don't they don't they 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 have a kind of slave morality as Nietzsche would call it and they they Project a kind of guilt onto successful writers who are willing to play the game at its own rules and by its own stakes, and that holds them back. When really, it's just a joyful science over here, and you're just doing experiments with words, and that's what writers do. So,
0: uh, I agree, I did it. I agree totally. Um, I mean, copywriting is just another form of words isn't it? and persuasion
1: to. Uh... Yeah, and, and fiction is an act of persuasion you're trying to persuade your reader to follow and create images and, and like, have experiences uh, in their mind
0: you' you're a pretty productive and busy guy what what do you do what do you do to relax
1: oh, the uh, I don't oh, well <laughs> <laughs> I find writing relaxing but uh, I find working relaxing I find that relaxation is maybe something I I need to explore more, but I meditate every day. I have a dedicated yeah. meditation practice and I walk almost every day. I also spend a great deal of time offline. And I think that if you wanted to go back to the whole secrets of success thing, it is daily meditation
0: Yeah,
1: and being on the internet as little as possible uh, throughout the day. That is also a huge thing. And just, following rituals and rhythms and patterns as much as possible. It's kind of a, if this, then that, if I wake up, I meditate. If I meditate, I journal. If I journal, then I do my morning writing and so on. And you know, life is not so clean. Things come along that change it, but having a, well, the rules set you free. So if you and I heard that from Tony Buzan, who I trained with, who's a great memory trainer uh, yeah. and the, crea- the co-founder of the World Memory Championships, uh, and I went in and trained with him personally, and he said the rules set you free, and it really is true because even when I fall off the wagon, because I have this established morning ritual for so many years now, it's easy to get back on it. No, well, easy, but it's it's doable to get back on it and so i just got back from my honeymoon and i maintained it mostly through the honeymoon getting back home there's a few days of you know putting oil in the joints and then get back into it and now i'm in full swing again so uh-huh. and that's relaxing it's it's relaxing in and of itself to have patterns to follow
0: well we're, we're hardwired to, um to follow ritual and to, to observe your own personal ritual throughout well, the yeah, day but we're it's being... very powerful
1: we're being rewired to follow new posts and tweets and dancing all over the place. Oh yeah. yeah, And that's, uh, what that's harming a lot of people, uh, including me. That's just why I deliberately go to cafes where either getting online is so arduous and painful. I don't bother or to libraries that don't have internet or wherever, because I don't, I don't want that to be my existence. It's painful.
0: Oh, to look back I, at
1: the day and be like, where did it go?
0: Without without being political, I've got a strong <laughs> belief that um, Twitter and Facebook have led to the current outcome in the US presidential elections. <laughs> the, the environment, that, that mindset created by um, Facebook and Twitter. I've, I've got a strong belief that the internet, Facebook and Google are dumbing us all down by whittling away our capacity for thought and remembrance. You know, when, when every answer is just a swipe away, we're, we're not using our brains as they're meant to be. Do, do you think modern, modern technology is destroying our ability to remember?
1: It's a difficult question and it is one that gets into the political for sure. And there's no need to dance around that. The, I think the best way to answer the question, and it's something that I've talked about with Tony Buzan on my podcast and with Brad Supp, and those are very interesting episodes because uh, Tony now is working on a very interesting book that I'm excited about. And he has a concept uh, and and it's a kind of hierarchical ranking called the warrior of the mind. And he gave me, you know, you know, Moonwalking with Einstein, he gave me that pin. And uh, essentially knighted me a warrior of the mind. So that that has to do with the fact that I'm able, in part, to manage and mitigate the damage of whatever's happening with the internet. And Zup's idea is is that there there are new casts. So in these discussions with Buzan and Zup, this idea has emerged that that maybe there's a warrior class because of militarization yeah. and. There's an intellectual class, a caste or class uh, that may be emerging that will be made up of the people who are better at finding balance in their lives with these technologies. And one of the ways to find balance is to make sure that your mind is bright and capable and receptive and able to manage information. And so I think of memory techniques as a kind of martial art mm. that essentially you are able to absorb the energy of information and direct it where you want to go. So it's not just about memory techniques, but it's also about handling information in and of itself as a kind of enemy, so to speak, that, uh, or or a, uh, a friendly combatant that needs to be managed and requires you to be a, a capable manager of information. But the extent to which it's uh, technology and the media and technologized media is ruining our brains or dumbing us down, to me that... There's different ways to approach that, and I don't want to get too intellectual about it, but there's the concept of pharmacon, which we had Sophocles talking about, and you have it in Oedipus very strongly, and it's the idea that the cure that poisons is the poison that cures. And so it's both. It's always both. And we also have the idea of personal responsibility, And one great thing is that the message of personal responsibility and different techniques and ideas about how to improve yourself are being spread around at a much greater rate, but in poisonous form. So it's the cure having part of the poison and poison having part of the cure. So that pharmacon image from the ancient Greek term for pharmacy, meaning very specifically a place where There are poisons that cure and cure that poisons. That's what the internet is. It's a giant pharmacy. And so one needs to essentially become their own scientist, their own pharmacist, and really work in self-care and management and figure out what it is they want to do in their life and what's the tiniest little step that's going to move them towards that direction and keep going and be their own scientist. Uh, But we have the lab, and it's amazing and fun to play with, but it can destroy you. Uh, so, you know, maybe I'm thinking Marvel Universe too much in this, but it's <laughs> it, it certainly is that way. I mean, it, it really is.
0: It's, uh, I think that's you can be
1: a super. That's what I mean. is, You could become a superhero or a supervillain or you could just become the person who destroys yourself due to multiple explosions in your <laughs> brain.
0: <laughs> I think that's a, a great spot to uh, wrap it up. What, what, what are you working on at the moment?
1: Um, I have a new book slash video course coming out, tentatively titled Become a Writing Machine.
0: Oh, yeah. Fantastic.
1: I'm about to release Genre Frameworks, which is based on a film studies course that I did when uh-huh. I was a university professor about genre. I've got a novel that I'm working on. I've got more memory stuff. Uh, I've started a new podcast called Self-Improvement Supercharger and that's about to be launched with a sort of soft launch and yeah, just I'm trucking along
0: Great to hear it I, I like people that get out, create and do stuff whether it's artistic or business or writing <clears throat> just um, putting their thumbprint print on the culture and you've, you've certainly done that Anthony, it's been a pleasure talking to you
1: Well, thank you very much for having
0: me you're welcome, and uh, dear listener, <laughs> I hope there's more than one, um, you can find out more about Anthony's uh, blog and pod- podcast and links to his books at the www.magneticmemorymethod.com. Um, that's a good gateway to all things a- Anthony Mativier. Um, search Amazon on his books, um, and of course, Udemy, um, some fantastic courses there. I think you've got over twelve thousand students now. I mean, you have you? Some some extra, extraordinary. I think, 000. Wow. I think
1: it's twenty one thousand. Wow, it's twenty one thousand so. But the the real action happens in the online memory university I have on my site, and yeah, I mean the numbers have just gotten gotten pretty huge. So there's a lot going on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Thanks again, and. um Good morning in Berlin and uh, good night for me. Hey. Well,
1: thank you very much and have a great evening.
0: And that was Anthony Mativier. Um, and you've been listening to the eBook Revolution podcast. I'm Jeff Hughes. I hope you enjoyed the show. It was a great show, a great discussion about memory. And um, yeah, check out. Um, Anthony's um, stuff over there at um, MagneticMemoryMethod.com dot I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, please, if you're listening on iTunes, uh, give us a tick, give us a review if you enjoyed the show. Um, I'd love you to give us a review. Um, the more reviews, the more people get to hear about the show, and the more downloads. We may even pop up in uh, iTunes new and noteworthy, which would be kind of cool. And um, that's it for me. Uh, Of course, the podcast notes are on the uh, brand new website, ebookrevolutionpodcast.com. So um, truck on over there and um, find out everything about this show, uh, all the stuff about Anthony and more besides. That's it for me, Jeff Hughes, over and out. Thanks for listening.